Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, violent assault, and child abuse. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and domestic violence, visit spotify.com resources. It was another busy Friday evening at Sacred Heart General Hospital in Eugene, Oregon. The summer of 1972 had been especially hot, which meant more heat stroke and more heart attacks. But Dr. Wesley White was startled by the details of his first case that night. A 15-year-old girl, Denise Raymond, had been admitted to the ER with a severe stab wound in her lower abdomen. She had lost a lot of blood and was barely conscious when she was brought in. Thankfully, the team was able to save her, largely because the hunting knife narrowly avoided her vital organs. Now that she was stable and awake, Dr. White asked her what happened. Refusing to meet his eyes, Denise said that she'd purposefully stabbed herself. Dr. White felt uneasy. When he tried to ask more questions about the young man who brought her in, she clammed up and refused to say anything more. As he walked out of her room, Dr. White knew something was deeply wrong. Deliberate, self-inflicted stab wounds were incredibly rare. When he reached his office, he called the police. If it turned out he was overreacting, so be it. Because right now, he couldn't shake the feeling that this girl was in danger. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify podcast. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're discussing the crimes of Dayton Leroy Rogers, the Malala Forest murderer. I'm here with my co-host, Greg Polson. In today's episode, we'll discuss Dayton's isolated childhood, growing up in a religious family where he was terrorized by his father. We'll also see how that upbringing might have shaped him into a dangerously misogynistic young man, ruled by vicious instinct. In part two, we'll follow Dayton's sadistic killing spree through the forests near Malala, Oregon, during which he murdered at least seven women. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Like it or not, we all inherit things from our parents. Sometimes those hand-me-downs are obvious. You've probably looked at a baby and marveled at their resemblance to their mom or dad. Genetics shape our physical traits, certain health outcomes, and natural abilities. But some types of inheritance are less clear and less measurable. Sometimes children can internalize their parents' views. And as we'll see in the story of Dayton Leroy Rogers, A belief can mutate as it's passed down through generations. Dayton was born in the fall of 1953 in the city of Moscow, Idaho, into what appeared to be a large and loving family. He was one of seven siblings, and with so many mouths to feed, money was tight. His parents, Ordis and Jasperell Rogers, were devout members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was their faith that had first brought them together, But the couple didn't agree on much else. Ordis never wanted children and reluctantly went along with his wife's wishes for a large family. But he made no effort to hide his disdain. He often beat his kids, leaving them with cuts and bruises. He possibly justified the violence as punishment for bad behavior. But really, the bigger problem was that he erupted at the drop of a hat. Dayton and his siblings grew up in constant fear of their dad. And as one of only two boys, it seemed that Dayton often bore the brunt of Ortis's rage. Relatives who visited the family witnessed Dayton's father slapping and whipping his son with a belt. On another occasion, Ortis repeatedly punched his son as the boy sat motionless in a chair, making no effort to defend himself. Even worse, after the beating was over, one witness recalled, everybody would sympathize with Ortis because he had a broken blood vessel in his hand from hitting Dayton. This deeply warped scenario shows how Ortis used manipulation and intimidation to keep the rest of the family on his side. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. This situation was a textbook example of a tactic that's referred to by the acronym DARVO, That stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse, Victim, and Offender. In a DARVO scenario, the perpetrator of interpersonal violence will deflect blame by denying the victim's version of events, attacking their credibility, and casting themselves as the victim. 
the behavior is especially devastating because of the way it gaslights the survivor, making them doubt their own experience. Ortis claiming he'd hurt his hand by punching his son and getting sympathy for it shows the strong psychological hold he had over the family. So not only did Dayton not physically fight back, he also had nowhere to turn for comfort. The impact of this abuse was made worse by the family's instability. It seemed hard for Ortis to find work, and so he took odd jobs where he could. That often meant uprooting his family to go where the gigs were. It wasn't unusual for the family to load up the trunk and move every few months. They'd settle in remote rural areas, sometimes without electricity. Occasionally, they lived in their car. Once, when Ortis had been without work for a while, they even moved into an abandoned chicken coop. All told, the family moved nearly 40 times by the time Dayton was 17. Unsurprisingly, it took a toll on the children's social lives. It was hard to make friends with the constant relocation. Plus, the remote areas where they often settled isolated them further. This could have been intentional on Ortis and Jasperell's part. The couple were possessive of their children and worried about losing them to the outside world. They were especially suspicious of big cities. And according to a family acquaintance, they believed the end of the world was coming at any moment, and staying away from society would keep them safe. Nowadays, the Daytons might be known as doomsday preppers, always bracing for the apocalypse. It's possible that Ortis and Jasperell did believe that staying off the grid was the best way to protect their children from Armageddon. But with so little stability and no community of peers his own age, Dayton knew almost nothing about the world except for what his father told him. And that was not good news. Ortis Rogers loved to talk about evil. He constantly told his children they had a demonic entity living inside them, which could only be tamed by regular church attendance, prayer, and Bible readings. Ortis was also suspicious of women and girls. He taught his children that women who had sex before marriage should be stoned as a punishment. His beliefs caused him to act a bit strange. For instance, Ortis had a record collection which included some Hawaiian music albums. One day, he became fixated on the covers of some albums, which showed women wearing grass skirts. He got a black marker pen and drew over the women's bare legs to cover them up. When visitors asked about it, he called the women derogatory names and said he wouldn't tolerate pornography in his house. Dayton heard all of this at an early age, and it warped his lifelong attitude towards the opposite sex including his own sisters. As he neared adolescence, Dayton developed a sexual interest in their feet. According to a 2007 study conducted by researchers in Italy and Sweden, foot fetishes are the most common type of sexual kink. There are a lot of theories as to why. Sigmund Freud claimed it was because the foot served as a substitute for the penis, while recent science attributes it to crossed wires in the region of the brain that maps bodily sensation. Either way, when Dayton was in middle school, his father found steady work at a bakery in College Place, a small town in eastern Washington state. For the first time, the family put down roots. In 1964, Dayton attended a Seventh-day Adventist Academy nearby. There, he was finally free to explore who he was outside of his family. He made friends his own age. One of them was a boy with whom he shared one of his first sexual encounters. The pair remained involved for the next several years. 
But given the repressive religious environment Dayton had grown up in, it's easy to imagine he felt some stigma around his sexuality, and his father's bigotry followed him wherever he went. The older he became, the stronger it got, until ultimately it consumed him, and others paid the price. Coming up, Dayton's dark side begins to emerge. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa, here with some big news for fans of our show. You can now listen to Serial Killers anywhere you get your podcasts. To our loyal listeners who've stuck with us over the years, thank you. We owe this incredible opportunity to you. And to anyone discovering the Serial Killers podcast for the first time, welcome. We can't wait to bring gripping crime stories straight to your favorite podcast platform, wherever that may be. If you're looking for ways to support the show, head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and let everyone know your favorite podcast is now available everywhere. On a personal note, in my recording booth at home, I have dozens of wonderful reviews left by all of you. It means the world to me. Catch new episodes every Monday and listen free anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Dayton Leroy Rogers spent his formative years in a constant state of instability and fear. He was cut off from society, forced to move constantly by his parents, and regularly beaten by his volatile father. He was also an average student, doing the bare minimum in class. And in 1969, when he was in the seventh grade, he became restless, bored, and eager for excitement. So one day, Dayton and some friends left their houses and headed to a nearby road. There, Dayton fired a BB gun at passing cars, trying to shatter their windows. Someone called the police and Dayton was arrested and charged with a misdemeanor. Though he was let off with probation, a far worse punishment waited for him at home. His father was furious to hear that his God-fearing son had broken the law and beat Dayton savagely. Dayton sat quietly and endured his punishment, just like he always did. But it's possible that inside, something was different. He loathed his father for the abuse and his mother for not protecting him. Now he was just counting the days until he could get as far away from them as possible. Shortly after the BB gun incident, the family moved again, this time to Oregon. For Dayton, it was the last straw. In 1970, in the middle of his sophomore year, he dropped out of high school, openly defying his parents. He had no intention of spending one more day living under his father's roof. Dayton left home for good, moving 50 miles away to Corvallis, Oregon, a small college town surrounded by rugged mountain ranges. He found work as a house painter. After two years, he moved to the city of Eugene, where he continued painting. In the summer of 1972, he started dating a 16-year-old named Julie, and by the end of the season, the couple were married. Now 18, Dayton seemed to be settling down into a responsible adult life, but his parents still weren't happy. 
they disapproved of Julie because she was a Lutheran and made it clear that Dayton didn't have their blessing to marry someone outside of their faith. But he didn't care. Actually, the fact that his parents didn't approve may have made Julie even more appealing. This is a recognized psychological phenomenon known as the reactance theory, where feeling pressured into something makes someone do the opposite. Basically, a person might perceive coercion as a threat to their freedom, and so they more forcefully lean into the behavior or belief that's being forbidden. The reactance theory makes a lot of sense here, given Dayton's desire to rebel against his repressive parents. And when he and Julie wed, the rift between Dayton and his family only grew wider. But despite severing ties with his parents, he was still his father's son. Getting married had done nothing to change his deep-rooted beliefs about women, which Dayton internalized from a young age. And that misogyny soon reared its ugly head. One evening in August 1972, Dayton was driving on the outskirts of Oregon. At some point, he saw someone on the side of the road. It was a young woman with her thumb outstretched, hitching a ride. Dayton pulled over, and 15-year-old Denise Raymond climbed into his car. The two got to talking, and then to flirting. Dayton drove Denise to a remote woodland area just outside of town, where they made out and eventually had sex. Afterward, Dayton drove Denise home, just as he'd promised. Before she got out of the car, he asked if he could see her again the next night. She agreed. It's possible Dayton spent the next 24 hours stewing on what he'd done and on what Denise had done. Since he'd been raised to see any woman who had sex before marriage as evil, he may have blamed her for the encounter, telling himself that she'd tempted him into cheating on his new bride. By the time he showed up at Denise's house the next day, he might have been eager to put things right. Dayton drove them back to the same stretch of woodland, where they fooled around again. As they lay on the ground, he told Denise to close her eyes. Then he pulled out a hunting knife and stabbed her in the abdomen. As Denise stared at him, barely comprehending what was happening, Dayton told her, I just couldn't trust you anymore. Then, as Denise lay bleeding on the forest floor, Dayton seemed to immediately have a change of heart. Bizarrely, he asked her to marry him. You can only imagine how disoriented and terrified Denise must have been at this moment, but she was at least coherent enough to beg Dayton to take her to the hospital. In the end, he agreed, on the condition that she told the doctors a cover story. He dropped her off at a local ER, where Denise claimed that she had stabbed herself with a hunting knife. But the attending doctor, Dr. Wesley White, was suspicious. The stab wound was deep, in his opinion, far too deep to be self-inflicted. He stepped into his office and called the police. At first, Denise was reluctant to speak to the officers, too afraid that Dayton would find her and finish what he started. But eventually, she admitted the truth. Three days after the attack, the police tracked Dayton down at his workplace and brought him in for questioning. At first, he tried to tell them a story that matched Denise's fake one, explaining that he was just a good Samaritan who'd found her wandering down the side of the road, bleeding. But under pressure from the officers, who revealed that Denise had told them everything, Dayton ultimately confessed. 
a psychiatrist who assessed him around this time concluded that he was competent and had insight into his own state of mind. Ultimately, he diagnosed Dayton with schizoid personality disorder, a condition marked by detachment, emotional coldness, and a lack of engagement with both people and activities. Dayton eventually struck a deal and pleaded guilty to second-degree assault. He was sentenced to four years of probation. It's not clear how much oversight was involved, but it doesn't seem like the authorities paid much attention to what was going on in Dayton's home. If they had, they might have realized his appetite for vulnerable young women was only growing stronger. In 1973, Dayton met two teenage girls who'd run away from home. It's not clear exactly how they crossed paths, but perhaps he picked them up as hitchhikers, just like Denise. He and Julie invited the girls to live with them. However, it wasn't long before Dayton became sexually involved with both of them and made no effort to hide it from Julie. The couple had only been married for a year. In that time, Dayton had been charged with assault and had an affair with two teenagers. He wasn't getting husband of the year anytime soon. Furious and devastated, Julie moved into another apartment with some new roommates, but Dayton wasn't about to let her go without a fight. After getting drunk one evening, he tracked Julie down at her new apartment and demanded she come back home. Things escalated and he ended up in a fistfight with her male roommates. Though Julie ultimately returned, the friction between them made Dayton livid. He grew up in a household where his father was the ultimate authority, and nobody dared question him. Now, he expected the same kind of obedience from his wife. Over the course of that summer, the atmosphere at their home became more and more tense. Dayton began drinking heavily, trying to distract himself. But soon, no amount of alcohol could keep his violent thoughts at bay. Up next, Dayton loses control and pays the price. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1973, 19-year-old Dayton Leroy Rogers began to understand the meaning of be careful what you wish for. Ever since he invited two teenage runaways to live with him and his wife, Julie, his household had become a pressure cooker. Having two live-in girlfriends seemed like a good idea at the time, 
but now he realized he was in way over his head. In early August 1973, almost exactly a year after his attack on Denise, Dayton spent the day getting drunk. That evening, Julie went out, leaving him alone with the two teenage lodgers. She couldn't have predicted what would happen after she left. No one could. At some point, for reasons we don't know, Dayton flew into a rage. He attacked the two teenagers with a beer bottle and beat them. Then, as if emerging from a trance, he realized what he had done. And once he did, he was gripped by panic. After all, he was still on probation. If he got caught, he was going to prison. He sprinted out of the house and drove away as fast as he could. He didn't have any particular destination in mind. He just knew he had to get as far from the scene of the crime as possible. In both of his attacks so far, Dayton experienced almost instant regret and panic. Though his reaction here isn't as strange as his proposal of marriage to Denise just after stabbing her, both incidents suggest that before the attack began, he was operating from a totally illogical place. He wasn't thinking ahead. Dayton's impulsive behavior could be explained by several reports, which suggest he had some form of brain damage. It's not clear how he got this supposed brain injury, but given how often he was beaten by his father, chronic head trauma wouldn't be surprising. According to a neuropsychologist who examined scans of his brain, Dayton had damage to his frontal lobe, which can sometimes cause a loss of inhibitions, problems with memory and impulse control, and antisocial behavior. It might also cause dissociative episodes, a risk factor for violence. That doctor also noted that Dayton had tissue loss on the right side of his brain, which can lead to difficulties with insight, orientation of self, and planning. It's impossible to know for sure what was driving Dayton's behavior during these attacks, but if he did experience brain trauma, it may have influenced his decision-making. In any case, the lack of planning was fortunate for Dayton's two teenage victims, who survived the attack with minimal injuries. They contacted the police right away, and officers searched for Dayton. They didn't have to look for long. In his desperation to flee the scene, Dayton lost control of his Chevy Camaro and crashed it into another vehicle not far from his house. The police picked him up and booked him on two more counts of assault. As prosecutors prepared their case, they ordered a new psychiatric evaluation of Dayton. This psychiatrist came back with a much more dire report, concluding that Dayton was extremely dangerous with antisocial and sociopathic traits. Today, these two terms mean roughly the same thing. Sociopathy is just a colloquial term for antisocial personality disorder, which is characterized by a lack of empathy, aggressive behavior, and a disregard for the rights of others. The doctor added that given Dayton's age, he might still make positive improvements with the right care, but emphasized the need for intensive inpatient treatment and that he shouldn't be released back into society without, quote, substantial proof of his cure. The judge agreed. By March 1974, Dayton was found not guilty on the two assault charges by reason of insanity and was committed to the psychiatric ward at Oregon State Hospital in Salem. At first, Dayton seemed withdrawn and haughty, refusing to engage much with fellow patients or staff. But he soon made more of an effort in group therapy, perhaps because he realized he could be stuck there for years if he didn't. 
While receiving treatment and a program for sex offenders, Dayton opened up to doctors about having violent sexual fantasies, which he admitted were becoming more frequent. Though Dayton had attacked several women by this point, as far as we know, he never hurt Julie, his wife. Again, the misogynistic ideas he'd learned from his father may explain why. He'd been taught that women like his mother deserved respect, while women who had sex outside of marriage deserved to be stoned. This created a classic Madonna whore complex. Madonna is a Christian reference to Mary, Jesus' virginal mother. The complex refers to a perception of women as either good and chaste, like Madonna, or devilish and seductive. Dayton viewed women in terms of these two binary categories. They were either good, like his wife, or bad, like his victims. It's unclear how much Dayton talked about his views of women during his time at Oregon State Hospital. But as far as his doctors were concerned, he was making progress. During his time there, he found a job with a furniture company and was given permission to leave the ward during the day to work. By November 1974, eight months after he was admitted, the hospital authorities recommended he be released. The clinical director wrote that Dayton, quote, appears to be recovered from his mental illness to the degree that he is no longer a menace to himself or others. This seemed like a pretty bold claim to make after just eight months, especially when Dayton had attacked three young women within a year. Nonetheless, his release was granted. And by the end of 1974, Dayton was a free man. Now he thought things could finally go back to the way they were. But Julie had other ideas. She'd had a lot of time to think over the past several months, and she'd come to an obvious conclusion. This marriage was doomed. She filed for divorce. Now 21, Dayton was completely alone in the world, and he soon discovered that he liked it that way. He chose to stay in Salem rather than go back to Eugene to be closer to his family and embraced his new untethered existence. But he wasn't single for long. Within three months of his release, Dayton met a young woman named Sherry Miller. Like him, she came from a strict family and he was drawn to her innocence. Sherry was naive, sexually inexperienced and religious. All the traits Dayton wanted in a wife. Dayton married Sherry in October 1975, but by that time, he was already cheating on her. It was another showcase moment for the Madonna whore complex. Though Sherry was marriage material in Dayton's eyes, those same qualities left him unsatisfied, constantly in search of something shiny and new. It seemed like respecting a woman and desiring her were mutually exclusive for Dayton. His inability to remain faithful wasn't the couple's only problem. Within weeks of the wedding, he was laid off from his job at a local painting company. This left him unemployed and entirely dependent on his new wife and her parents. Dayton was devastated and spent more and more of his nights out at bars, picking up women and trying to forget his troubles. He was drinking heavily again and using marijuana and his mood became unstable. Sherry soon reached the end of her rope one night in December 1975, two months after their wedding, she confronted Dayton, demanding to know where he went at night. Her questions infuriated him. The couple had a terrible screaming argument, which ended with Dayton storming out of the house. He burst out into the driveway and got into his car. He drove further into the darkness, heading towards the freeway. 
As he left the lights of the city behind, he stewed on the fight with Sherry. His Madonna had upset him, and now he had to find another woman to pay the price. Before long, he spotted a parked car on the shoulder up ahead. As he slowed his car down to a crawl, he saw an attractive young woman inside, sitting behind the wheel. As far as he could tell, she was alone. Dayton got out and walked towards the other car. As he approached, the young woman turned to look at him through the window. He plastered a friendly smile onto his face and gave her a sheepish little wave, trying to look as non-intimidating as possible. She smiled back and prepared to roll down her window. Dayton knew nothing about this woman, and he didn't need to. His father's sexist rants had influenced his fantasies since he was a young boy. And now that he was a man, he was ready to make those fantasies come true. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with part two, where we'll discuss how Dayton's misogynistic rage drove him further and further into madness, culminating in his ferocious killing spree in the summer of 1987. For more information on Dayton, amongst the many sources we used, we found Gary C. King's book, Bloodlust, Portrait of a Serial Sex Killer, extremely helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify podcasts for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify podcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Emma Dibdin, edited by Ben Caro and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Sapphire Williams and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. Thank you so much to our fans and to any listeners hearing our show for the first time. Don't forget that you can catch new episodes of the Spotify original Serial Killers free each week, anywhere you get your podcasts.